Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We're continuing in our series on the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to jump back in at Luke chapter 6 in just a moment. But I want to ask you a question. How does it feel to be chosen? See, that's an open-ended question. It depends on what I'm chosen for. If my boss is choosing me to do a dirty, nasty, everybody hates it sort of job, I don't like to be chosen. We've all been in situations, right, where we've been chosen for something we didn't want to be chosen for. We've been in that meeting and somebody mentions something, you put your head down and say, don't pick me, don't pick me, don't pick me. But I think we all know what it's like to be in a situation where we want to be picked. We want to be chosen. We're hoping, maybe praying. To be chosen, I have to be honest, when I was younger, I was not all that athletic. I was fast. I could run fast. When we played tag on the, on, on the playground, I mean, I could run fast and I could stop on a dime and turn a court, you know, go a different direction. So I was hard to catch. But anything else, team sports or whatever, I wasn't all that good. You know, I was the guy that when they said, let's choose up teams, I just said, Lord, please don't let me be last. Please don't let me be last. Makes me think of the guy who says, you know, whenever they're picking up teams for an athletic event, they're always fighting over me. Yeah. He says, you take them. No, you take them. No, you take them. (laughs) Anyway. How does it feel to be chosen? How does it feel to be chosen for a team, for a job, as a friend, as a date, as a spouse? Those words, I choose you. I choose you. Other than the focus of our message today, the most meaningful application of those words makes me think of my relationship with my wife. Way back in Bible college, I have to admit, I was relatively confident. I was confident in my relationship with God. I was in Bible college preparing for ministry. I was confident in my... uh, intellectual abilities, you know, I did well in school and I love to study, I love to study God's word, all that kind of stuff. But I have to admit that I was a little bit insecure and didn't have as much self-esteem as far as girls were concerned. Hadn't dated much, you know, through my teenage years and that kind of stuff. I'll be honest, I really didn't feel that probably most girls would have any interest in me. And so the night that I was just kind of hanging out on campus and... Pastor Jan, can't, she wasn't Pastor Jan then, but when she came by with some friends and we first met and she showed some interest in getting to know me, I thought, this is really, really cool, you know, and, and I forget exactly how it worked out. We ended up going for a walk and there started to be some interest and I thought, man, this is really cool and it just totally blew me away that somebody like her would be interested in me. I mean, she was very popular on campus and, and all that kind of stuff. A lot of guys wanted to date her and, and she was willing to, you know, if they would buy her a meal, you know, that'd be really good. You know, she liked, the, you know, cafeteria food, you know how that goes. But anyway, she was very popular on campus. And so anyway, I finally worked up enough nerve to ask her for a first date. And uh, I got things a little confused, but it all worked out because when I asked her to go to a concert, a Christian concert, she says, it's a definite possibility. In my mind, that's, she said, yes. I found out later she literally meant that. It's a definite possibility. I'll think about it. And thankfully, the answer ended up being yes, because that's what I thought it was. 
But even though she didn't use the word, she basically says, I choose you to go to this concert with. Made me feel good. Long story short, because I can't give you the whole history. There's a lot of stuff to our story. It's a very unusual, interesting story. Got to the point where the next spring, I asked her to marry me. Again, I blew it. I messed it all up. Don't ask me why, but I asked her to marry me in a laundromat. I know why. We're doing our laundry and we're getting ready to go home for the weekend. And I wanted to be able to go home and tell my family, we're getting married. Well, when I asked her to marry me in the laundromat, she says, I will pray about it. We'd already expressed love to each other. We'd already talked about the possibility, but... Because of some circumstances in her past, having been engaged before to the wrong guy, she had promised God, God, I will not commit to marry anybody else until I know that I know that I know that I don't know that I know it's the right person. And so she said, I got to pray about it. So we went home for the weekend. I kept hoping she was going to say, yes, yes, yes. So I could tell my family. She didn't tell me to the day we came back from being at home. But I can't fault her because that was when God told her. So anyway. But then when we stood together on that platform on May 17th, and we did those vows again. Those words were not used, I choose you, but that's basically what was meant. But can I also tell you that it means the world to me that she basically says that not in those words, but almost every single day. And I say it back to her. So I'm so glad you're my husband. I'm so glad we're together. Now that's not meant to put any focus on us, but, but the idea of being chosen, to be chosen for a relationship, for a situation that you desperately want to be chosen for. Perhaps even something you don't deserve to be chosen for. I hope every single one of you have experienced that. But we're going to be talking about that today. And I'll just tell you up front where we're going and what I want you to get today from God's Word. And that is that you have been chosen. You have been chosen by God. You have been chosen by Jesus for a relationship. You've been chosen on purpose and you've been chosen for a purpose. The title of our message today as we look at Luke chapter 6 is Chosen by Jesus. Chosen by Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of a review. We've been looking, uh, we've been working our way through Luke since last fall and we're going to keep working it through until we get done. Take a break every once in a while and introduce some other topics and things along the way. But we're in Luke chapter 6, and Jesus, uh, he's been involved in ministry for a while. Um, you know, he's going to be ministering for three, three and a half years. We don't know exactly where he is, but it's in the first part of it yet. He's been traveling around. He's been ministering. He teaches. He preaches. He heals people. He casts out demons in Luke, anyway, he hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet, but he's going to do that. He started calling some of his disciples. We've seen his call for Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John. We've seen where he's called Levi, who's also known as Matthew. In our passage today, we're going to see where he solidifies the 12 that are going to be the closest disciples. But as we saw in last week's lesson, that even though everywhere he goes, there are growing crowds that want to be where Jesus is to hear what he has to say and to experience his touch, to be healed or delivered, that he is having rising opposition from the religious leaders. 
In fact, at the end of our passage last week, we saw that the religious leaders begin to plot to get rid of him. In Luke, Luke puts it, what are we going to do? We've got to do something about this guy. But other gospel writers let us know that they're actually at this point already saying, we may need to kill him. We've got to get him out of the picture. And that brings us to our story today. And we're just going to read all the way through it. Then we're going to jump in and see what it's saying and how it applies to us. But Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. It says, in those days, what days? Right after it said in verse 11 that the religious leaders were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus, wanting to kill him. And in those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. Let me just pause there to say that Luke, more than any other gospel writer, mentions Jesus praying. Before every major event, in the midst of all the things that's going on, even when Jesus' schedule gets so hectic, he takes time to pray. There's one day we've already studied where he's up late at night after a busy day and healing people and meeting with them one-on-one, and he still gets up early the next day before anybody else and goes out to pray. And as I've said so many times, if Jesus, God himself in the flesh, needed to take that time every day, and more on special occasions to connect with His Heavenly Father. We certainly need to. In those days, He went out on the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, He called His disciples and chose from them twelve whom He named apostles. Simon, whom He named Peter, and Andrew, His brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. There's two ideas I want us to explore together today. From this story, but also how they apply to our lives. And that is chosen on purpose and chosen for a purpose. Chosen on purpose and chosen for a purpose. So let's take a look at chosen on purpose. We see in this story Jesus choosing his disciples. And he chose them on purpose. Jesus chose his disciples on purpose. He was very deliberate about it. He was very purposeful about it. He didn't do like we often do or did as children when we had to make a choice and it really didn't matter too much with the eeny, meeny, miny, mo. How many of you use that one? Yeah. How many of you have a different version maybe from your culture that's like, it's similar to that, but it's a different counting thing where you choose something, right? And you know how it goes, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And then if you get to the end and you actually chose something or someone that you didn't really want, you go on. You say, and my mother told me to pick the very best. You know, you find some way to keep on going if it stops in the wrong place. That's not how Jesus chose his disciples. It was very deliberate. In fact, 
Luke makes it plain he spent all night long in prayer. Now, he may have talked to God about other things. He probably did. But in the context, I think Luke's purpose is to tell us that this choosing of these 12 disciples who are going to be called apostles, and we'll talk about the difference of those two in a moment, was so significant that he had to take some critical, crucial time to really think it through and pray it through by talking to his father. Now, I want to make it very, very clear here that Jesus is not just saying this is important because these are men that are going to work with me over the next several years. And then these are men that are then going to carry on the work that I start, although those things are totally true. But before we get to that, I want to emphasize that Jesus chose these disciples, first of all, to have a relationship with them, not just to recruit them. Not just to give them an opportunity. Not just to call them to a life that would be so phenomenally better than anything else they could choose, although it would be also phenomenally more dangerous and risky and painful than probably what they would choose. But he chose them because he wanted a close relationship with them. In Mark's version of this story, in Mark chapter 3, Verses 13 to 15, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And then it goes on to say, and then they were going to work with him doing various things. The very first thing it mentions, he says, he chose them that they might be with him. He wanted these men with him. Can I tell you that even though we know that Jesus was God come to earth in the flesh. He has always been God before he came here. He was God while he was here, God and man, and he still is God. That when he came here in the flesh, I believe that Jesus had the desire and in his flesh even the need to be connected to closely and supported by and encouraged by other men and women. And we know there was a whole group of women that traveled with him too. We've talked about that before. Jesus wanted that relationship. Jesus wanted that relationship. And it says he called his disciples. We often think there were only 12 disciples, but there were hundreds of disciples. There there was one time it says that Jesus sent 72 of his disciples out on a ministry trip, you know, two by two. So we know there was more than 72. A disciple, we've talked about this before, literally means a learner, a student, a follower, but it has a different connotation than it does today. Today, a student is someone who maybe goes to a class, takes a course online, in person, wherever it might, so they can learn some material or learn how to do something mechanically or whatever it might be. That's a student. In their day, a disciple incorporated that, but a disciple was much more than that. A disciple was someone who would follow a teacher. Rabbi means a teacher, who would follow a rabbi. And the idea was not just to learn everything that rabbi knew, but to become like him. It wasn't just, you can teach me some good knowledge, you can teach me some good skills, but I see in your life something, I want to be like you. That's a disciple. The idea is to become like your teacher. But it says that of all his disciples, he chose 12 to be apostles. What's an apostle? Well, one little girl in Sunday school said, well, an apostle is probably the wife of an epistle. That's not what it is. 
or maybe it's the epistles of wife of an apostle. I don't know. They're not really connected. An epistle is a letter. An apostle literally means one who is sent with the idea of one who is sent as a representative. Jesus chose these 12 disciples out of all the other disciples to be extra focused on, extra close, so they could eventually become the apostles, those that he would send out to continue the work that he was beginning. And after his death, resurrection and ascension to take the gospel to the world. So what kind of quali- what kind of qualifications did Jesus look for? You know, we said he chose them on purpose. On purpose. You know, he didn't just, you know, kind of divide it, you know, pick pick them up one way or another. He chose them. What were the qualifications? I mean, did God just kind of give him a list? We don't know exactly that process there. But I can tell you what the qualifications weren't. Jesus didn't choose the most powerful. Jesus didn't choose the most influential. He didn't choose the most popular or famous. He didn't choose the ones who had been specially educated. He didn't choose the rich. He didn't even choose the people who had the extra reputation of being really religious or really spiritual. Now, they were religious, spiritual. They they loved God. They weren't among the religious leaders. That isn't how he chose them. In fact, they were just ordinary people, the unique people from various backgrounds, but just ordinary, everyday people. They had their strengths, but they had their weaknesses. They had their faults. As we read their story, and many of you already have, but we find that often they were proud. And I don't mean in a positive way, but in a negative way. We see that a couple of them had tempers. We see that they were self-centered and selfish at times. In fact, one of the biggest arguments they would get into with each other was, who's the most important? And it wasn't, oh, it must be you. No, it was me. They were so often clueless, had no idea what was going on. Even when Jesus tried to explain things to them, they just didn't get it. We find that as we look at the story and take it all the way to the end, that one of them betrayed Jesus. But yet all of them abandoned him. So those aren't the qualifications. There's a variety of people that are here. We know four of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector, Matthew, or Levi, as Luke calls him. One was a zealot, this guy named Simon. And there's a story there I've shared with you before that's got to be really interesting because Matthew was considered a traitor to his people because he cooperated with the Roman government to collect taxes, which were very oppressive, and the tax collectors would often collect extra because that's how they made their money. And Simon the Zealot, the Zealots were the ones who were so committed to getting rid of the Romans that they were willing to do violence. To try to stir up a war, to murder people. Not saying he was that way once he became Jesus' disciples, but you got somebody who worked for Rome and took advantage of people on Rome's behalf, and then you got Simon, who in his past was ready to do anything he could to kill people. I just wonder what kind of relationship Matthew and Simon the Zealot had at the beginning and what it might have developed into. I came across this thing a couple years ago, and um, those of you that are part of our Bible study on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the life of Peter. I read it way back when we studied, uh, when we started that Bible study. But I, I love this. This is, this is fictional, okay? 
wasn't found on some ancient scroll. But this is supposed to be an assessment of the apostles by a company called the Jordan Management Consultants. And they just took their findings and they sent it in a letter to Jesus. And this is what the letter said. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but we've also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultants. It's the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew does not have qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and particularly Simon the Zealot, have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. Thaddeus is definitely sensitive, but he wants to make everybody happy. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He's a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the others are self-explanatory. Wish you ever success in your new venture, Jordan Management Consultants. What's the point of that? The point is that God can do anything with anybody. He doesn't need people who have special abilities, although he certainly loves to use people with special abilities, especially since he's the one that gave them the special abilities. Jesus can do anything with anybody. I, I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God only knows why he and Jesus together chose those particular 12. But there is one thing that all of them had in common, at least at the beginning. Judas, of course, went a different direction. What is it they all had? They had a willingness to follow, to learn, and to obey. Can I tell you that God can do anything with somebody who's willing to follow, to learn, and to obey? So Jesus chose his disciples on purpose. And can I tell you that Jesus chose you on purpose? Jesus chose you on purpose. Jesus chose you and you and those of you that are watching online. He chose you on purpose. Something along those lines are mentioned, is mentioned so many times in Scripture, but the one that most stands out to me is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with this great, this great expression of praise for all the wonderful things God has done for his people. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He says, God chose us before he even created the world. We didn't even exist 
The only existence we had was in God's knowledge was that someday we would exist. But even then, God chose us. Knowing what we would do and what we wouldn't do and who we would be and who we wouldn't be and the kind of character and personality, good and bad, He chose us. I think of other times in Scripture where especially the prophet Jeremiah said that um, God spoke to him as I knew you in your mother's womb before you were born. David had a psalm that was very, very similar, saying that God knew us before we were born. God, Jesus, knew you not only before you were born, but before this world was ever created, and he chose you. Now, a big aspect of that is what you do with the fact that he chose you, because you have a choice to make too. But he chose you. His desire was to have you as a son or as a daughter. And he chose you individually. He, he, he knows you individually. He knows you uniquely. You know, we, we relish the truth of a very popular, well-known Bible verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And we rejoice in that because it means it covers everybody. But I think sometimes we can look and say, yeah, God just loved the world. All these people, they're just out there. And God says, yeah, I love them. I love them. Let's do something about the problem. But no, I believe that it goes so far beyond that because of other teachings in Scripture. It's not just this world that He created that He wants to redeem, this world full of people, but each and every individual. I believe based on what Scripture teaches that you can put your own name in there and it's accurate. For God so loved Tim McIntyre that He gave His only begotten Son. For God so loved you and you and you and you that He gave His only begotten Son. How can I say that? How can, how can I say that God really knows me as an individual? I mean, there's how many billion of people? I can't even keep up with how many billion. Is, is it over eight yet? I think it's over seven billion people in the world. And that's just all the people that are alive today. Forget about all the people that have always lived. God really does know each and every one of us and cares about each and Yes, He does. He does. In Jesus' teaching, Luke chapter 12, we'll get there down the road someday. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, he's talking about how we should just trust God because God loves us, he's going to take care of us. But in the context of that, that passage, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's he trying to communicate there? You can trust God and know that he loves you and he wants to take care of you because he takes care of sparrows. Sparrows you can buy in the market five for a penny. God knows every single one. There's not a single one that falls out of the sky, dead of a heart attack or eating a bad worm or whatever, that God doesn't know it. How much more does he know you and care about you? He says, not only does God know all about you as an individual, he knows all about every individual hair on your head. That's quite a job keeping up with that because it keeps changing, doesn't it? God knows you individually. He chose you individually. And can I tell you that just like we emphasize that he chose his disciples for relationship even before they're working with him, the same thing is true for you. He chose you to have a relationship with him. 
You know, it goes all the way back for the very reason why he created this world. In the Garden of Eden, he had such a close relationship with Adam and Eve. And it seems to indicate that every day or very, very frequently, he would come down from his position in heaven into the garden to walk in the cool of the day, to relate with Adam and Eve. Can I tell you, that's the very reason why God did create this world and create people. He didn't need us. He still doesn't. God is God. He is full, complete in and of himself. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need this world. He doesn't need us. But the good news is, is that he wants us. He wanted a world full of people to have a relationship with. He wants us. Of course, it was all messed up when Adam and Eve chose their own self-will to give themselves over to sin and to pursue that instead of a relationship with God. And that's what led to all the problems. But God so loved that he didn't give up. He said, I've got a plan in place. I already knew what's going to happen. I've got a plan in place to take care of it. In fact... The opportunity for us to have a relationship with him was so important to him. That's the exact reason why Jesus came. It wasn't just to say, hey, I'm going to choose you. I choose you. I want a relationship with you. What's your response? He says, for that to happen, there's a price that's got to be paid. And I so desperately want a relationship with you and I love you so much and I've chosen you and I'm so Excited and I was so desiring to have a relationship with you that I'm willing to pay the ultimate price that we can have a relationship. And that was his death on the cross. See, the basic truths of the gospel are the bad news and the good news. The good news is good because the bad news is bad. And the bad news is that we are all sinners separated from God. God created us to have a relationship with him, but because we have a sinful nature that we've inherited down through the years, all the way from Adam and Eve, and we can't just blame them because we choose ourselves to pursue sin. We're all sinners and we're separated from God. And the wages, what we earn from that, the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because of what he did. To make it very clear, hopefully make it as very clear and as very succinct as possible. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, the life that we could not live, so that when he died a death that he did not deserve, God counted his death to pay the price for our sins. And that's what it means to put our faith in him. The Bible says to have a relationship with God, we don't just start trying to be good and do this and do that and do the other. All those good things are good things to do, especially after we come to have a relationship with him. But they can't earn that. We can't earn salvation. It's not based on good works. We can't be good enough. But instead, we put our trust in him. Jesus said over and over again, Peter said, Paul said, Repent and believe. Repent and believe. We repent of our sin. Our sin is what separates us from God. Say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to be separated from you. I'm sorry I sin. Forgive me of my sin. But I don't deserve it. So I believe. I believe what your word says. 
that Jesus took care of it for me. He died on the cross that my sins could be forgiven. I thank you that your word says you will forgive me if I put my trust in that instead of myself. Now help me. Help me to live for you. I don't want that sin stuff anymore. It's what separated me from you. And then we begin to live a life of growing and learning and obeying. We make mistakes. We fall. We fail. We give in to temptation sometimes. It's not ever an excuse, but we do. But God says Jesus paid for that too. Repent. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And can I tell you that if you get nothing else from this message, if you are here today or you're watching online and you have not yet stepped over that line, you have not yet turned over the steering wheel, you've not yet, whatever metaphor you want to use, you've never surrendered your life to Christ and put your trust in him to forgive you of your sins. That's what you need to do today because Jesus chose you, but you need to choose to respond to his choosing. I'm not at the end of my message, but in a little bit I will be. And I challenge you, if you've not done that, you know, God's working on your heart. I know he is. His Holy Spirit is working in your heart that today would be the day that you would surrender your life to Christ. Put your hope and your faith and your trust in him. So, Jesus chose his disciples on purpose. He chose you on purpose. And can you tell you that the good news is can be a little humbling that it wasn't because of any special qualifications that you had either. Just like the 12 disciples were ordinary, everyday men, and Jesus chose them anyway, the same thing is true for us. We might like to think, and, and, and there's some truth to the fact that we all have our areas of strengths. We all have those areas where maybe we're really good, you know, extra good at, and maybe we do, you know, have certain talents and abilities and our personality is great or whatever. Maybe we have a certain amount of money. All of us have a lot more money than most people in the world. You know, whatever those are, those aren't the qualifications that Jesus used to choose us. And I'm so glad because if he had some kind of qualification, what if we didn't quite measure up? And the good news is, is if you come to him, because you might say, but Jesus wouldn't want me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what kind of person I really am on the inside. Nobody knows. God knows. But if you come to him, he will not reject you. Jesus made that promise. In John six thirty seven, he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Can I tell you that the only people who won't make it to heaven, the only people who won't have eternal life with God, the only people who will go to hell, which is eternal separation from God and all that is good, that God wants no one to go there. The Bible makes that very clear. Peter tells us that God doesn't want anybody to perish. He's done everything he can. He sent Jesus. Jesus gave his life. The only people that will end up there will be people who choose not to come to him. So Jesus chose for a purpose. He chose his disciples for a purpose. He chose you for a purpose. The second thing I want to talk about, and this one will be a little bit shorter, is that we are chosen for a purpose. We've chosen on purpose. I think I misstated that a minute ago. He chose us on purpose, chose his disciples on purpose, but they were also chosen for a purpose. Jesus chose his disciples for a purpose. Now, he doesn't talk about it so much in this passage, but he lays the foundation for it. When we get to the second half of the passage that we read back at the beginning of the message, when it says that after choosing these 
12 to be his apostles, they came down off the mountain to a level place, and we're getting ready to launch into a passage in Luke that's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Okay, some of the same teachings and such. We're going to jump into the beginning of that next week. But it says that all these people have gathered in this place. I mean, he's got the 12 apostles. He's got other disciples besides that. He's got other people that have been following him around. We've got great crowds. In fact, it mentions where the crowds are from. And it says that in this case, the crowds are from farther away than they ever have been before. He's been drawing crowds from Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee. Now he's drawing them from places outside the country. And they're all together. And it talks about what he does. It says they came to hear him because he's teaching. And they came to be healed because he's healing. And they came to be set free from unclean spirits. And he does that too. So here it's talking about what Jesus did, but it doesn't really talk about what the disciples are going to do. But I would propose to you that when Jesus chose his disciples on purpose, he chose them for a purpose. And that purpose is to do the same things that he's doing. And I can say that with confidence because we see it illustrated all throughout the rest of Luke and all the other gospels. And Jesus even tells them, he says, the stuff I've been doing, I'm going to send you out and I want you to do it. And as he gets toward the end of his life, Jesus says, the stuff I've been doing, I'm leaving, but now you're going to do it. So Jesus chose his disciples for a purpose. Yes, he wanted a relationship with them, but he also chose them to train them to carry on the work and to multiply the work that he was doing. Two passages. I read the beginning of this one a little while ago, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, where it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And that's where I stopped before, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. In John 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples, and I believe that that whole conversation applies to us today too. But in John 15, 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should be, should abide. So how did they prepare? We're going to see that as we continue the story through Luke. And perhaps you're familiar because you've read this story before in any of the gospels. We see that he calls these disciples to themselves. They're going to live with him. They're going to travel with him for about three years. They're going to watch him. They're going to see. They're going to listen. And not just when he's in public and what he says and what he does, but even in private and how he lives and how he is. At some point, Jesus is going to give them responsibility while he's standing right there to do stuff. He's going to be watching. He's going to be guiding. He's going to be leading. And then eventually when they learn from that, he's going to send them out and he's not going to go with them. But he is going to send them out two by two. And they're going to have great success doing what he calls them to do. And then as we've mentioned a couple of times, when Jesus leaves this earth after his death and resurrection, he ascends into heaven. He sends them out into the world. He says, I'm leaving. I'll be with you. Not physically. My Holy Spirit will dwell within you. My presence will be with you. But now you need to go out and do what we've been doing together. So what did he train them to do? I, would, I just want to propose to you that, you know, there's a great multitude of things you can encompass under what do we do for the kingdom of God and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we can see in Jesus's ministry here two general care, uh, categories that I think are general categories for the disciples and will be general categories for us. So what is it that Jesus did that he's going to train his disciples to do? The first one is to share God's truth. 
to share God's truth. It says they came to hear him. They didn't come just to be healed and later on just to be fed, but they came to hear him. This was a man who taught God's word and God's truth with authority. They could tell God was behind this. He really knew what he was talking about. So Jesus taught God's truth, the good news of the kingdom. And he taught the disciples to share God's truth too. And he commissioned them to take this truth, to take this gospel to the world. The second thing is to show God's love. You see, God's interaction with the world isn't just about, I got to get your head straight. It's, I love you and I want to meet your needs. I love you and I care about the pain you feel. I love you and I care about the need that's in your life. Even if you brought it on yourself, I love you and I want to be actively involved in your life to help you get back on track and to see your needs met. Jesus is healing and he's delivering people from demonic spirits and other stories. He's feeding people when there's nothing to eat and raising the dead and doing other things in very practical ways, meeting practical needs. And, and of all the things that God calls his people to do, the, the first disciples and the, us today, it can all be kind of summarized under these two things, can't they? God calls us to share his truth and to show his love. And can I tell you that if you're really good at sharing the truth, but you're not good at showing his love, people won't listen. And if you're really good at showing his love, but you don't share the truth, their needs might be met, but they'll never know Jesus. You've got to have both. So just as Jesus chose his disciples for a purpose in the same way Jesus chose you for a purpose. But can I tell you, like I emphasized before, he didn't just choose his disciples so he could use them. So he could train them up to do some work. He doesn't choose us just so he can use us, just because he needs us to do something. God doesn't need us. Chose us for a relationship, but in the midst of that, he wants to use us. It's a privilege to be used by God. It's a privilege. And he pays well, too. Now you might say, well, hey, you know what, Pastor? I've I've been living for Jesus, and right now I'm going through some rough time. I I don't think it pays so good right now. Well, God, it's not payday yet. Can I tell you that? God pays installments along the way, okay? He sends some blessings. He sends some rewards for all that we do for him along the way, but the ultimate payday hasn't come yet. As the old song says, when we get to heaven, if we've been faithful, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. I don't care how difficult it gets, and I'm not minimizing or trying to minimize anybody's pain or difficulty or whatever you've been through. Some of you have been through horrific things. Just keep trusting Jesus. Just keep following Jesus. Just keep serving Jesus. He will work in and through that to bring good in this life, but ultimately the payday, ultimately it'll all be well worth it. Jesus chose you for a purpose, to share God's truth and to show God's love. You are a unique creation of God. You have a unique relationship with God, if you do have one. You have a unique calling and a unique gifting, and he wants to call you to a unique service. You are different from anybody else. There may be some similarities, but God has a special plan just for you. 
So how do we share God's truth and show God's love? We do it through our characters. God is molding and shaping us, and we're cooperating with the Spirit to become more like Jesus. He does it through our words. He, he does it through our actions. He does it through our lifestyle. In our story, he chose 12 of the disciples to be apostles. And we will never be apostles in that same New Testament sense. It was a very special office and responsibility to fulfill. But the idea of an apostle being a sent one, a representative, we do fulfill that. We are Jesus' representatives in this world. Paul said in Corinthians, I didn't write the verse down, that we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, his representatives. And there's so many ways that we can serve Him and others in our world. He uses our different personalities. He uses our different gifts and talents and abilities and and functions in our world and in the church. There's so much teaching in Scripture we've done before. We'll do it again. Some of it, especially by Peter and Paul, talks about how God gives gifts to His children. That's not talking about presence. That's talking about abilities. And He gives them specifically so He can use you in your world. He can use you in the church. Some of those gifts are obvious and they're in front of people like preaching and teaching and speaking and other things. Some are just very simple things behind the scenes like serving and giving and hospitality and encouraging and all that kind of stuff. If you compile a list of all the gifts listed in the New Testament, there's like 25 of them. I don't think that's exhaustive. I think there's a lot of different things that God gives to us and does in and through us supernaturally to accomplish his work. Another teaching you see throughout Scripture is that we're like a body. We are the body of Christ. Each of us are like a different part of the body, and different parts do different things. Your thumb does something different than your kidney does. You you go in for a kidney transplant, they don't just take your thumb off and stick it in there. wouldn't work very well. It's not made to do that. The different parts of our body do different things, and they're all important. They're all necessary. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. As each person does their part within the body of Christ, as we reach out to the world, but as we function within the church, the church, the body is healthy and accomplishes great things. You know, I don't know if you've ever hurt your leg or something. It becomes very difficult to get around and to do things, right? Or some other part of your body. You need the whole body healthy to function fully. And the same thing is true for us as the body. That's why there's a lot of teaching about unity in Scripture. That's why when Jesus prayed for his disciples, the number one thing he prayed is, Lord, help them to be unified. And as he looked down through the years and he prayed for us today, he says, Lord, help them to be unified. It's one of the biggest things the enemy would like to do is to bring division. He does that through criticism. He does that through gossip. He does that through uh, backbiting. He does that through getting us upset with one another. I mentioned we're all unique in that, and sometimes that can cause us to rub each other the wrong way, but God says you need to still love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and work together for his kingdom. We see that happening in our church. You know, the reason we're able to do what we do, and we're... We still got so much more we want to do for Jesus, and there's so many things we could do better, but the reason we're able to do what we do is because of so many of you who serve so faithfully in some area of ministry. Yesterday, we had our elders' prayer meeting, and we pray, we meet every third Saturday of the month, and we have a great time of prayer, and our whole purpose is to pray for you, for our church, and for what God's doing, what He wants to do, the things that impact our church and the people in our church. And yesterday, as we were praying, I just felt led of the Holy Spirit because we were over in the other sanctuary yesterday morning praying, and I could hear the lawnmower outside. 
I'm not going to mention any names because it might be embarrassing. If it wasn't embarrassing, it might fill them full of pride. So I'm not going to mention any names. But I knew of three people, two men and a woman, that were here cutting grass, weed-eating. They were here for hours. One of them here was pretty much all day long and went home sick because he wasn't feeling well. I just began to pray. I said, God, thank you so much. I thank you for our elders. A little bit more obvious responsibility on our deacons and deaconesses. But Lord, I thank you for everybody that serves, especially those who serve in the out-of-the-way places, the parts that aren't seen, cutting the grass, cleaning the buildings, serving at meals, fixing food, making the phone calls, reaching out to people that are in need, taking somebody to the doctor, to the hospital, to the grocery store, teaching children, teaching youth and whatever. Lord, thank you for all the people in our church that are functioning as part of the body of Christ. And let me just lovingly challenge you, if this is your church home and church family, or even if you have a different one, find your place and serve. And it's not just kind of permanent and ongoing things, but in simple things like we renounced the back to school Sunday that's coming up, I think it's three weeks from today. We can use all of you. And there'll be a chance to sign up next week to do things just as simple as fixing food, serving food, setting up, cleaning up, overseeing inflatables, keeping an eye on things. There's all different ways you're going to be able to serve. I encourage you to sign up next week. One last thing before I start wrapping this up. You might say, well, Pastor, I get what you're saying, but I have messed up so bad. I don't think God can use me anymore. Just study the life of Peter, which we've been doing on Wednesday nights. And uh, we'd invite you to join us. We're getting close to the end. You can go back and watch them or listen to them online. Peter was such a phenomenal man, bold, zealous, enthusiastic, a great leader. And when he got it right, he got it right. But when he got it wrong, he did it wrong. And Jesus still used him. Jesus still used him. So Jesus chose you. How will you choose to respond to his choice? Just because Jesus said, I love you and I will die for you. Doesn't mean everything's right between you and him or between you and God. We have a choice to make. There's a warning in this passage and we're going to wrap it up with this. There's a warning here. Jesus chose the twelve. But in verse 16, the last one mentioned, it says, And Judas... Iscariot, who became a traitor. Notice how Luke words that. He became a traitor. We don't know, and scholars, Bible scholars have debated for years, what motivated Judas and when did it happen and how did it happen? Was it greed? Was it he was trying to force Jesus to proclaim himself? What was it? But it seems to indicate here that he started out well. That he started out Right. We know Jesus used him. When Jesus sent the 12 out to heal and cast out demons, he went out with somebody. I don't know who his partner was. And they came back having done so. But at some point, something changed. Can I tell you that there are people, there can be people, the scriptures teach that there are people who look really good on the outside, but on the inside they haven't truly Develop that relationship with God. I thought as when I was sitting down there right before coming up, 
in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said that one day in the judgment, there will be people that stand before Jesus and He says, depart from me. They said, but Jesus, we followed you. We, we healed people. We preached the gospel. We cast out demons. We did all these things. He says, I never knew you. And the conclusion of his, his, his statement there is that it doesn't come down to just what you do or how you look like on the inside. It's what's going on on the inside. You know, there are people that are out there here today or you're watching online and you look really good on the outside. There may be people who think you're so spiritual, you're so cool, but you know in your heart of hearts that you've not fully surrendered your life to Christ. And I challenge you and I encourage you to do that today. Let's all stand together. Our worship team is coming so we can conclude and close as we most often do. They'll lead us in a song. You can sing along. I always challenge you to meditate on what God has spoken. And if God has truly spoken, I believe he has and you've been open. He's spoken to your heart and you already know maybe how you're supposed to respond and and that you would respond in that way. I'm going to invite my wife, Pastor Jan, the elders that are here today to come down front and we'll be here available to pray with you. We can pray with you about something God's laying on your heart from the message or if you've got some totally different need, you need healing, you've got something going on this week, you've got a loved one or a friend that you want us to pray with you about something, that's what we're here for. I especially want to challenge you that if you don't have a relationship with God, we'd love to help you get connected this morning. If you want to make a new commitment to God, we'd love to help you do that. But I just want to challenge you. Examine your heart. Examine your relationship with the Lord. Are you actively following Him? Are you learning? Are you growing? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you serving Him by serving others? Sharing God's truth and showing God's love? Working together with Jesus and with the other brothers and sisters to accomplish His purposes for the kingdom? If not, or if something needs to change, I encourage you to commit yourself to it this morning. Either my wife or my wife will come back and close the service in prayer in just a few moments, but let's take this time to respond to what God's speaking to us about. You may be standing here going, wow, that was a good word. And it was a good word. But we need to apply it. We need to walk in obedience to God's word. Love God. Love others. That's what he's called us to do. And that's when it can be well in our souls. No matter what we come up against. We can honestly say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Amen. Father God, I bless these precious people of God in the name of Jesus. And I ask you, Father, as we go out, Lord, that you would help us to be your hands extended to those we come in contact with. Help us, Lord Jesus, to share your love with a smile, with a kind word, with a nice nod, whatever you would have us do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Go out and be a blessing.
hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 